Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20-year-plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear that comes when you have been declared cancer-free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today, I sit down with Dr. Chris Duhon. Dr. Duhon grew up in a small town in southern Louisiana near Lafayette. As a young boy, he was accustomed to the freedom of country life. Fresh air, quiet nights, and great food. His family grew their own vegetables and stocked their own meats. He has great memories of playing in fields and exploring nature with his younger brother and cousins. As he matured and experienced life, particularly medical school, he discovered that his passion all along is working with a person's terrain, the foundation of their health, their soil, so to speak. His gift of listening to his patient's body has allowed him to honor their uniqueness and develop individualized personal care. He's been fortunate to be mentored by some brilliant Swiss medical doctors and local naturopaths who imparted their wisdom and experience to him. It's left him a wide variety of tools to offer his patients, such as IV therapy, hyperbaric oxygen, ozone therapy, and more. Dr. Duhan works out of his office in Seattle, Washington, both virtually and in person. He works with all cancer types and applies the Terrain 10 methodology to all cases in order to dismantle the process bit by bit. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Chris. But before I do, just a couple things to mention. First, a reminder to head over to my website at revivewellness.com to get your free seven top tips to keep cancer away and feel confident in your body again. That's R-E-V-I-V-E wellness.com. And second, I want to take a moment to thank the Carl Felt Center, who makes this show possible. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. I am really looking forward to our conversation today. Oh, thank you. Yes, me too. Yeah. So first, I would just love to hear a little bit about your background because it's definitely an interesting one. Yes. I think a lot of people find that. Um, I'm from Louisiana uh, originally. I've been in Seattle area for the last 16 years. Uh, I went to medical school up here. Um, and I graduated from Bastyr University. Um, before that, I was a priest, a Catholic priest, because everybody's like, well, what kind of priest were you? I was like, you know, I know that there, I think there's other priests in other faiths, but for me, it's like, okay, I'm just a Catholic priest. I was that way for a while, uh, you know, five years, and then I felt called to do something more. Um, and this happened when I was studying at Creighton University and kind of some of the things that they taught us at Creighton were very introspective. And so when I was kind of really 
cueing into my own movements or directions that my feelings and intentions were taking me. It was very different from staying as a pastor in the Catholic Church. And so at that point in time, it was really alarming for me. But it was to actually, the call was to, you know, I really was trying to help people in a very holistic way, even as a priest. And what I felt that is I I didn't, ha- I had the spiritual and the mental peace that had been given to me through a lot of my training, you know, but I didn't have the physical, like the body piece. And that's what I felt like I was being called to go get and then put it all together. Um, so that's kind of the the story. <laughs> so unique. And I think it's so wonderful because you do have that spiritual yeah, thank you. part that you can help people with. And I think in the cancer journey, that's so important. Right. So what led you to work with cancer patients? That's, you know, that's such a good question because I always say that, you know, we don't ever set out saying, you know, like I wasn't in medical school saying I'm going to work with oncology. You know, I was like uh, thinking, okay, well, you know, chronic, you know, primary, I didn't have a, I didn't have a desire for primary care, but my last year in, you know, in medical school, I was more being led to like more chronic conditions, right? Uh, like metabolic syndrome, heart, all, you know, cardiovascular, all that. And whenever I, I did a residency, uh, my first year out of school at this clinic called Holistic Healing Arts, and I was there, IV, uh, I set up her IV clinic, you know, and I was doing IVs for the whole clinic and they were infectious disease. So they saw a lot of Lyme patients, a lot of, you know, parasite, parasitic infections, all, you know, it's just really heavy on infectious disease. And then I went to work for Dr. Paul Anderson and that's where I started encountering oncology. And so I always say that I didn't really set out to do that. I feel like the field called me to do that. My dad also died of prostate cancer, you know, when I was literally six months ordained a priest and never thought that I'd have to bury my dad. Um, But yeah, that was a big, that was a big thing. So, you know, looking back at that, you know, it's just like, I, I, now I know how, how I would help someone with prostate cancer. Cause back then I didn't, you know, we very dependent on just the whole system and what they were telling us. And now, you know, knowing what I know now, I would have probably been a little different in that situation. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I know you mentioned working with Dr. Nisha Winter. Right. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And I know both of your work focuses on being metabolically flexible. Right. And I was wondering if you can explain what metabolic flexibility is and then how you become more metabolically flexible yes okay you know i mean dr winters and i talk about she read the study and she actually and now i think it's worse it's like back uh, like two or three years ago we kind of read this study that said literally only 12 percent of our population is metabolically flexible and the rest is inflexible so you have to kind of think about our body The flexibility means the ability to adapt, right? So as we grow up, you know, we eat certain things and our bodies will, can adapt to that, meaning the, our blood glucose can remain stable, you know? So that's why you see kids, they can probably eat 
you know, sugary things. And then you take their blood glucose and it's sort of, you know, it might have a little bump and spike, but then it's stable. Although I say that, and now I know we have a huge diabetes epidemic. So that may not be the case at this point, but typically what it means is like, if I ate, for instance, if I ate just like a huge meal with vegetables and it may have some starchy or heavy carbohydrates, my blood sugar would remain stable up to an hour, two hours, three hours after I ate it, right? And then, so that's the flexibility, meaning it's, I'm not going to have these huge spikes, right, of ups and downs. So we call that in, you know, just in medical terminology, dysglycemia, you know, so it means that we can't adapt well to what we're actually putting in our, our mouths. And, and so then we get these spikes and these, you know, these very low points, so the way we help people with that, you know, to become more flexible um, is that we start to do in things like intermittent fasting. Uh, fasting is a really good way of kind of, you know, becoming more flexible. Also really a well-prescribed, like a, a really good foundational diet, right? Can I ask you a quick question about fasting? Because just for people who don't understand the difference between intermittent fasting and fasting, can you just explain that? Yeah. So intermittent fasting uh, would be that you fast for hours. Like, so let's say you decide I am going to have, I'm going to fast for 16 hours. So if your last meal is at six in the evening, then the next day you wouldn't eat till like 10 o'clock in the morning. That would be your first meal. And so if there's a win in intermittent fasting, there's a window of eating. Is that call we call it time, you know, timed eating, you know, or time restricted eating, where you just eat within that maybe that eight hour window, you know. And then the rest of the time you don't eat, you just drink water. So that would be intermittent fasting. Fasting is, you know, fasting is where, you know, there's it extends beyond that window, like to 24 hours, 36 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours, you know, where you're actually extending the fasting time where you're going without food and you're just doing water or tea, um, you know, call black coffee, those types of things. Now, for people that are new to fasting, uh, you know, sometimes you just got to work up to those extended fasts, right? I do allow when people are wanting to go and they're like, I don't know if I can make it. I would say, okay, well, let's just do a little bone broth. You know, bone broth is what we would consider. Like if you add something like that, or maybe a bulletproof coffee, which is coffee that is loaded with fat, like butter and MCT oil, then that's what I call modified. You know, it's just modified a little bit to kind of help you along the way, right? So that you don't really experience, because people, uh, when they're new to fasting, that's where we're working out all the kinks of their metabolism, right? And so when they can have periods of what we call low blood sugar or hypoglycemia, and that's they don't feel good during that time. So sometimes the bone broth or the coffee, the bulletproof coffee will help them through that. Okay. So do they fast? You do intermittent fasting maybe all the, to every day, but then the fasting just once a week or, or twice or it depends on the person. Well, it, you know, so uh, I say it, it all depends on the goals, right? So I'm seeing a lot of like oncology patients. So I don't want them to kind of be like, okay, I'll do it this day. And maybe I won't do it this day. I'm like, no, I need some consistency. So that's part of the you know, with the intermittent fasting, you're retraining your metabolism. So there has to be consistency throughout. And when it comes to 
extended fast, like I usually recommend like a three day once a month fast. All right. It's not like you're not, we're not really going for seven days. When I was at advanced medical therapies, we were doing seven day fasts there, like just water, wow. you know? So we were doing like, we were really going for the gut. So we do it once a year, but I sort of like the three day reset once a month. So three to five days, once a month, depending on what you're trying to achieve. All I'm trying to achieve with my three day once a month is metabolic flexibility. I'm, I want to maintain my flexibility. That's sort of what I want. And then back to that flexibility, it's also the similar to adaptability, right? You know, when people get sick, they lose their ability to adapt. It's like their autonomic nervous system cannot handle the input and they can't regulate their system. So they can't regulate their blood sugar. They can't regulate their um, hormones or they can't regulate, you know, just basic thing like blood pressure. That's sort of what the fasting, the intermittent fasting, the fasting we also use exercise. We can do different things to try to help them regulate their body or bring back a, a more stable regulation. And how do you find out that their blood sugar is regulated? You do testing on them? Right. So uh, I can guarantee you when I get a cancer patient, I know they're dysregulated because <laughs> they wouldn't have cancer, right? I mean, that, that's the basic thing. A lot, you know, I get a lot of that too. A lot of people on their intake, because one of the questions is, what was life like before cancer? And a lot of people say, good, or I was healthy. You know, and Dr. Winter says that if you were healthy before you had cancer, you wouldn't have cancer, you know? And so it's, there's a disconnect, right? There's a disconnect and people aren't really aware and paying attention to their bodies and the, the, actually the messages that they're getting from their bodies, you know? So when people come to me, I'm running these uh, battery of tests. So we have our first visit. The, my first visits are always designed to, I want all, I want you to tell me your life story. Rip, you know, and that sort of comes from my spiritual direction piece back when I was a priest. But I want to hear the story, and it helps me to kind of understand, like, you know, how the cancer, you know, got there too, you know, and what were some of the things, or maybe the events in the lifetime, like the exposures, or you know, they might have had, there might have been just some rough family stuff that went on, right? So some emotional pieces that happened along the way. So those are really important for us to kind of look at, you know, uh, because they are part of the process. And that's what Dr. Winter says. Cancer is not the, the it's a process. It's not just the tumor. You know, a lot of people focus on that tumor and the lesion and the metastases. But really, if they want to really kind of make a difference in a dent, they have to focus on the process. So what we gear our first, my first office visit is toward that process. And I want you to tell me about all that. So our first visit is basically me looking over that, their intake, which is 40-ish, 42 pages long, right? It's a really, it's a huge undertaking for, on their part. And I always congratulate them and thank them for all the detail, you know, uh, that they, you know, provided me with. And then I may have some clarifying questions, you know, because sometimes there's just a couple of details that I just need to fill in the blank and sometimes maybe not. And then it becomes more of a conversation between us, right? Because they come to me with lots and lots of questions, right? And I want to make sure that they get all their questions answered. So that's why I've geared 
my first office visit that way so that I can get the information so that they can ask the question. Because my my manager or my admin will not be able to do that on the phone. They they try and they ask, they're like, well, can you? And she says, you know, that is a medical question and that will be for Dr. Duan. But that's why the first office visit is set up like that so that we can get all the details that I need and I can just focus in on you and the questions that you have because they're they're scared, right? Oh, yeah. It's a scary process. And I want to make sure, and that's part of what I want to do, I want to make sure that they do get all their questions answered. And then I tell them next steps. And the next step is usually what we were just talking about. It's just like a huge comprehensive lab draw, you know, and everybody kind of jokes about that, you know, because especially when they go get it, the, you know, the, the, um, you know, the phlebotomist or the technician was like, if I ever get sick, I want that guy to be looking at me because we're doing like 26 plus tests. <laughs> so it's showing me a lot of things in their terrain. It's showing me their metabolism. It's showing me their infections. It's showing me uh, the inflammation. Uh, it's showing me angiogenesis, which is really big, which means the body's ability to kind of produce new blood vessels and the cancer kind of hijacking that process and taking advantage of it for its for its own survival and growth, right? So I can see all these different patterns just with that blood test. Now, in the first visit, there is a terrain 10 questionnaire. So a lot of times I'm looking at their questionnaire and I'm saying, wow, they have this and this area and this area. And then when I get their labs, I can, I, I can bump them up to each other. And I was like, oh, wow, they say they might have this on it. They don't have, they're not aware of their angiogenesis, but their labs show a huge angiogenic pattern, right? So then we kind of were working at, you know, working with the patterns. I call them patterns. So does Dr. Winters, right? Because that's sort of how when I look at their blood, I'm seeing the patterns that are in their body. And we're trying to kind of work with those patterns to kind of, if it's inflammation, we're trying to, that is the first one that I go after, by the way, is inflammation. Because that's a huge driver with all, all cancers. So we work at really kind of calming those fires down. Do you think the C-reactive protein, is that a good test for people to take? Yeah. So that's always, that's in my main labs. It's in my monthly labs. It's always there because with the C-reactive protein, with the sed rate, sedimentation rate, and that means how the time it takes for the red blood cells to settle, the longer the time, the higher the number, the more the inflammation. So when they have a, a sed rate of above 10, I know that they're inflamed. You know, so when I put that with the CRP, it just kind of elucidates or it tells me a little more. And then we use the lactic LDH, the lactic acid dehydration, which is, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, cancer is this acidic thing. And they're right, partially, right? It's the environment. And what the cancer does is it ferments the glucose, you know, so cancer has a preferential fuel and that, and they are right. People think sugar right? It is the body's way of it's produced sugar, but it with the cancer that it just takes the glucose and it ferments it and then it pushes out lactic acid. So the LDH measures the lactic acid in the body. Now, sometimes with newly diagnosed, we don't see the LDH that high, but I guarantee you when they're advanced and it's in stage, that LDH is very high. So when I see it high, there's several things that it could be, but it is that the tumor microenvironment is creating an acidic environment 
near it. And also there's other markers that will tell me if it's body wide. Oh God. Right. And it it needs more than just it needs more than just an alkaline diet. You see, because with the alkaline diet, people will say, oh, I'm going to eat a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet. And that will actually fuel that process more because everything they put in their mouth will eventually turn to glucose, which will just fuel the cancer more, right? So that's why we move them to a low carb, more ketogenic in style, depending on it, it would depend on stage, it depends on cancer type, you know, that's sort of kind of how I'm working with them. But usually we're, we're lowering the glucose levels, because that is most people are just like we said earlier, when they come as cancer patients, they're not metabolically flexible. So that is the first thing we have to kind of work on is the foundation because without a good foundation, none of the therapies will do really much. It, it, they'll do something, but you need a good foundation. I, I, there's a saying my Dr. Anderson used to say, and I don't, I'm holding back because <laughs> I don't know if it's appropriate for the podcast. <laughs> oh, try it. So he always said, he said, you know, I can't out supplement a shitty diet. Uh, That's what he would say to people. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So you have to have a good foundation because the supplements, you know, they're not going to make up for that foundational piece. They're there. You know, we have people on supplements and sometimes a lot, you know, because we're trying to teach the body that we want you to go in this direction, Right. And we're trying to correct some things that are there. And then we have to wait for the body to be able to do it on its own again. Right. And I just wanted to go back to sugar because yes. you hear so many things online. I I follow someone. I actually kind of stopped following her, but she's a registered dietitian right. who works with cancer patients. And she has all these things. It's a myth that sugar feeds cancer. Oh, wow. Yeah. I just wanted to get your input on that. Okay. Well, you should you should really kind of consult like Dr. Tom Seafried because I mean he will you know he he's kind of almost like I guess you could say like the father of you know metabolic or mitochondrial you know he kind of talks more about the mitochondrial how cancer really begins in in that area of our body which is kind of signaling other areas but sugar you know uh, that goes way back to Otto Warburg who found that, you know, cancer, you know, he found that cancer ferments glucose and that is like the cell, you know, and that same thing with Dr. Sig, uh, Seafree's work, they find that there's a shift in the mitochondria because now the mitochondria do not process glucose like it used to, right? Instead of actually bringing it to its very end point, it just doesn't even go into the mitochondria and it ferments like in the cyto in the you know like the, we call it the cytosol outside of the mitochondria so that's where a lot of the fuel part so it, bottom line is that there has been a metabolic shift in that cell and now that cell likes to ferment rather than we call it respire or breathe you know right so normal cells respire they breathe and they produce a lot of energy from a molecule of glucose but now there's something has changed in this cell and now it prefers fermentation. So that means that it's not going to be processed all the way. And then it's going to need more and more glucose. 
So it's going to start to take up. Cancer has, it has, uh, you know, so you just got to look at it, how our bodies, a cancer cell is your cell, right? It's a cell in the body. It's just a lot of the genetic protective things that have kind of kept it um, with the ability to live in community have been ripped off, right? And now it's it has this, it's almost like having a different attitude, right? So um, so then instead of respiring like the normal cells, now it wants to ferment and it wants to grow and it wants to expand and it doesn't care about its neighbors, you know. So, uh, but the one thing it has, and Dr. Winter says this, you know, as well. She says, you know. <laughs> If you just regulate the glucose, really 60 to 70% of the fight is that, you know, and then, you know, it's really establishing the foundation. So back to as a cell, cells have preferential fuel. Every cell in our body responds to fuels and glucose is the main source fuel. So um, we can be fueled by protein. We can be fueled by fat, you know. But that requires protein, that requires healthy mitochondria. But I have not seen it as a myth, you know, to kind of correct that as this sugar myth. You know, whatever you're eating will turn into glucose. It's how our, it's literally how our bodies are designed. And when I hear like other oncologists say, it doesn't matter what you eat, I just, it boggles my mind because, you know, I know because through my own biochemistry training, which I have a very similar training in biochemistry that any medical doctor does, because we have the same, we have the same basic sciences under our belts, right? And in my biochemistry class, the things that you eat were going down the different pathways, right? The biochemical pathways and things which were things like, you know, salads or, you know, their carbohydrates, but they still have a glycemic index. They still turn to some form of sugar usually glucose in our bodies that makes sense yes yes it does the tumor is only a symptom of cancer not the cause hello i'm dr michael carlfeld i'm the owner of the carlfeld center in meridian idaho we specialize in cutting edge integrative oncology care addressing the cause and not just the symptom of cancer there are 11 factors you need to address when diagnosed with cancer. To learn more of what they are, get my free ebook when you visit thecarfoldcenter.com. Along with the ebook, I will email you a free webinar series where world-renowned specialists will tell you what you need to do to address these 11 factors. You'll hear from experts like Jane McLellan, Dr. Paul Anderson, Dr. Neil McKinney, Dr. William Lee, Dr. Nasha Winters, and Dr. Isaac Elias. Don't miss out on this life-saving information. I also offer a free 15-minute cancer consult where we can go over where you are at in your cancer journey and how the cutting-edge therapies we offer can benefit you. Give the Carful Center call at 208-338-8902 or visit our website at thecarfulcenter.com. to ask you about gut health. Okay. Would you say that people with cancer have poor gut health or is that not a for sure? No, that's a for sure thing. <laughs> well, the, the gut, because our guts are, you know, you know, our fathers 
of medicine would say that, you know, several of the, our fathers of medicine would say, like Hippoc uh, Hippocrates would say things like, you know, the disease begins in the gut, you know, Paracelsus always focus on gut stuff. So it's, you know, it's, I get a lot of people with, you know, that they're, especially cancer, because there's immune dysregulation, I almost know that there's gut dysregulation at some point, but it's so layered underneath everything that I have to take care of these other layers first, right? So the one thing that I think a lot of people don't get about their body is that it has priorities and it has its own way, its own path. And the, what we're doing through the lab test is I'm really, it's like, it's like a listening mechanism for me. I'm listening to their, the individual's body through their lab tests. And I'm like, your body is working on this right now. So, you know, when I see things that lead me to, yes, while well, we have high infections, we have, you know, low absorption of protein, you know, I may want to end up checking the gut. And so that's kind of how the body cues me, like look more in this area. And then we kind of get to that layer, but Yes, you know, it's part of the immune regulation that we that cancer patients need is also a healthy gut, you know, they have to have because that's where our immune system resides. So when I did a lot of training at Paracelsus in Switzerland, they really good at working with the gut. I mean, I've, I learned a lot of stuff, things that they don't even we don't even have available available in this country. But they were just really phenomenal at gut. Oh, that's great that you have that training. And do you do tests like GI maps? I do. I do the GI maps or GI effects. Uh, there's a new one out. Um, I mean, I've also used Viome. Um, and I think there's one by Microbiome Labs, which kind of talks about your, your Viome or your, your, you know, the flora. But sometimes I want more than just talking about flora. I want to see regulation. I want to see if they can, um, you know, what's their digestion like? You know, can they digest their fats? Can they digest their proteins? You know, is there inflammation? Is there, you know, do they have like high or low secretory IgA, which is linked to the immune system? You know, am I seeing like the, their allergies? Because if we're not picking all up all those nuances, we will not heal the gut. And, you know, so it's not just about, oh, I'm going to change the diet. That's one piece. It's not about, I'm going to take probiotics. That's like scattering seeds. That's not the whole picture. The biggest picture is you got to change the humus or the soil in the gut. And for that, we have to know like, okay, if I'm working at changing the soil, but they're eating something that continually is assaulting the gut right? It's a food that they are allergic to and that they have an immune response to, or they have an intolerance to, but they don't know it. The gut will never fully heal, right? And I can be working on it for a year to two years or longer, and I'll still be saying, wow, they still have some leakiness, right? Even after all this time, but it's, I have not done my due diligence, meaning I haven't looked at the allergies. So we have to kind of look into everything such as that. We have to look at infections. We have to look into allergies, because we, the idea is to create a good soil so that when you do take a probiotic, you do scatter seed, it will have a good soil to fall in and it will take root. So, yeah. 
That makes sense. So just taking a probiotic, I mean, it's almost like putting a Band-Aid on it because you're not really... It really is. I mean, it will help, but you only take you so far. I mean, part of really, you know, like, for instance, uh, fasting, you know, just a three-day fast will change your entire microbiome. Some of the opportunists that you might be struggling with, could that whole population could be, you know, really kind of tamed and brought into control in those three days. And then you have a probiotic and you're following a really wholesome, good foundational dietary piece where, you know, the diet is consisting of good food, nutritional food instead of junk. And then it, you know, you bring in a probiotic that can kind of take up shop and start to bring some into some, you know, some control over some of the opportunists that are there that kind of, those are the microbes that kind of wreak habit in in our gut and cause certain things for us, you know? So um, there's a lot of research being done on gut health today and how it affects our mood. I mean, how it affects our weight, our blood pressure. I mean, everything. I mean, but it's kind of like whole, you know, it's whole body living. It is. I mean, we, we have a, it is when they say symbiotic relationship, it really is. You know, that our guts let us know it's, it works hand in hand with our immune system. When there's something off in the body, it's the microbiome that alerts the immune system and says there is something going on in this area. So there's a sensing that happens and the immune system will literally go and check that out. Without the microbiome, we lose that, right? So that's why we lose that. We lose cancer surveillance. And then that's why cancer is allowed to kind of take root because the immune system is not able to see it because the microbiome is down as well. Yeah. And that's why I think it's so important to test like you talk about, because I have clients that, you know, I'll ask them all those questions. How's your gut health? You know, are you constipated? Do you have loose bowels? Do you have, and they're like, no, my digestion's great. Yeah. Yes. But it might not be so great. Right. I mean, you, you, that is a good question. That is a good point. You know, Haley, I think that, you know, I, when I get people, they think like going to the bathroom every two or three days is okay. And I'm like, who told you that? No, you know, it's not, it's not okay. You should be eliminating either daily one to two times a day. I mean, babies eliminate after almost every meal you feed them, they'll have a little poop. And, you know, we are, you know, we're grown up babies, right? We've grown from babies. So our digestion should kind of sort of remain similar to that. We might, you know, some people do go two or three times a day. Some people go once a day, but the whole thing is that you are eliminating toxic waste. And if we do not eliminate the toxic waste, it stays in there. And the thing about our system, we will, what we call, we'll auto-toxicate, you know, meaning the body will absorb what's going on, water from the intestines. And if there's stool in there, it's it's going to absorb the toxins from that stool as well. And that will be redistributed through the bloodstream throughout the body, right? So that's really where, and that's where people get, you know, just they don't feel good. Right. So constipation is really not good. And there's, you know, when people are like, oh, can you help me with con- constipation? I'm like, sure. But there's reasons why. Sometimes the easiest one is like literally one I find is like that people don't like to drink water, you know, or they drink too much coffee and not enough water, or it's a magnesium deficiency. And sometimes it there is a real big problem. You know, it's, it's a nervous system problem or it's, you know, a stress issue or it's an IBS. So, you know, we kind of go through the gradations of 
figuring out why they're not able to eliminate. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that and how many times you should eliminate because you're right. People do think that. They think, oh, if they go right every other day, they're great, you know? Yeah. <laughs> or even once a day. You should go more than once a day. Right, right. So I know that you're a proponent of the ketogenic diet. And I know for cancer, it's a little different. Right. Sometimes the ketogenic diet gets bad rap because people think just high fatty foods like right. bacon, sausage, you know, and then some vegetables. Yes. Can you just go just briefly into that? Sure. You know, so that's what I tell the patients because I do literally, I do get a lot of, you know, blowback from the dietary piece um, because a lot of times people come with, they've heard something online or they've heard somebody speak negatively of the ketogenic diet. And a lot of times I'm like, you know, I want to find out, okay, well, what did they say? And, you know, cause it's usually, it's like, oh, it's just, sometimes it's just a lot of protein. And I'm like, no, it's not that. And, or it's, it's not enough vegetables. And I'm like, nope, it's not that, you know? So what, you know, marks, you know, there's the keto fad, which is what you kind of see out there in society right now. And then there is keto for cancer. They are two different animals, literally. Because in keto for cancer, you know, we are bringing people's carbs down, probably sometimes a little bit lower than what you see out there. Like they'll, you know, just like mainstream keto might say, oh, 50 grams is enough or 75 or below is considered low carb keto. And we are taking people down to like 20 grams of carbs a day, 25 grams of carbs a day, a day for a while. And that is designed to help heal the metabolism first and foremost. The next thing that we're doing is we're actually lowering their protein just to enough protein to where it manages and it protects lean muscle mass. That way we're not giving them excess protein because excess protein, uh, depending on what, pro how many protein, you know, the protein, some of the protein, some of the amino acids can be changed into glucose. And there is such thing as what we call gluconeogenesis or making new glucose. And that is a process that we'll, we, we will watch in, in cancer. So that's why we actually bring the protein down. What I see and when I'm working with people who do not have cancer and they just want, you know, health and we work on them, like I'm keto, I, I want to do the ketogenic diet and and I've done it before, but I, you know, I want you to help me with it. So I said, okay, well, we'll track. So I want to see. And so when they're showing me things like they're tracking in their chronometer, you know, I'm like, they're, you know, they have really high carbs and high protein. And then the fat is barely fat. And I'm like, are you doing the ketogenic diet? And they're like, oh, yes. I was like, no, you're not. So a ketogenic diet is low carbs, moderate to low protein and high fat. And that's really where I think a lot of people don't get that fat thing because there's something about raising the fat that scares folks, really, because it scares them about their heart. It scares them about their, you know, cholesterol. And I'm like, so that's a different pathway, right? When I see high triglycerides on people, I'm like, that's not the fat you're eating. That's the carbs and the fat you're eating because you're eating too much carbs for the amount of fat that you're, you're, you're taking in. So we need to work on that. So, but it is it's low carb, meaning 20 grams. It's moderate protein. So the protein we figure out, like depending on the cancer, depending on the stage, depending on the aggressiveness, that's going to fit on how we, we range the protein. But it's usually it could be 
0.8 grams of protein per kilogram are in people who are, you know, let's say they're, um, they've been through everything, they're preventing now, and they're just preventing reoccurrence. We might even go all the way up to uh, 0.8 grams per pound of lean muscle mass, depending on activity level, depending on where they are and what we're seeing in labs. So it's a range and it's different, but that's typically it's moderate to low protein. And then it is, like I said, it is high fat. So people are, you know, we want to kind of turn. And the reason why is that the mitochondria, you know, cancer prefers that glutamine glucose fuel, right? It does not prefer fat. It does not prefer fatty acids. And there's a lot of argument with that. And I asked Dr. Seafried about that one time in, in in a session. And, you know, because there's these studies that were coming out that were saying that the cancer is feeding on ketones and, you know, all this. And Dr. Winters is the one that put me up to asking him this question, right? And um, she said, go ahead and ask him this question, you know, because it is a question that a lot of people come to us. It's like, will the fat feed my cancer or will the fat feed this? Uh, you know, the study says that, you know, it takes up ketones. What Dr. Seafree said is that, you know, in the body is very different than on a Petri dish. On a Petri dish, if you're feeding in a test, if you're feeding cancer, it's going to adapt to whatever fuel you give it in there. If you're giving it a ketone, it eventually adapts to that ketone, right? It's a different story in the body. So he says he's never seen in all his studies and all the, you know, the experiments that they've done that a cancer cell in the body will adapt to a ketone. Good to know. I mean, I've seen that clinically, you know, like when the people, when people get it and it we can formulate it well, because I tell you what, this is the one piece that most struggle with because for that, I'm taking away a lot of things that have brought people comfort the way they used to eating, you know, because I'm from Louisiana, right? So we have food that's a, it's a certain, you know, we have like gumbo and etouffee and all this. And I don't eat any of that anymore because it, at my age, you know, um, if I would eat that way, you know, but I would probably be diabetic by the time I'm either now or in my sixties. Right. So, you know, it, it's kind of what I'm seeing with some of my own family members and, you know, that, and with some of the people in that area is that, you know, they eat the food and eventually it really wears on their flexibility, their ability to be more flexible. So you basically have to sort of shift and change. So I've changed the way I'm eating, even the way I used to eat when I entered medical school, you know, back in 2007. I'm eating much, much different now uh, than I was back then. Uh, You know, the thing is, though, you tell them, I mean, certain healthy fats, right? Like not just any saturated fat, right? Yeah, sorry. No, that's okay. I'm just thinking about it. Yeah, I'm so glad you're thinking that you're thinking ahead of me because I wait for the reports to come in and then I say, yeah, you know, saturated fat, you know, so... So what we do with most people is when I first start them on the diet, I want high fat, but I want, you know, I encourage them to do, you know, saturated fat in the form of like ghee or butter or coconut oil, more monounsaturated fats in the form of olive oil, in the form of avocado oil, macadamia oil. Those tend to be some of the oils that I stay around. I do not tell people go eat a half a pound of bacon and do this or this or these fat. You know, I I would prefer that you have a mixture of fatty 
meats, you know, with leaner meats, right? So you have we have to have a variety. In other words, it's not about just eating bacon and you know eggs that have been cooked and like half a cup of butter. That's really just not. That's not. That's that's what I think society thinks about keto, but that's not keto for cancer. Keto for cancer is that yes, you you might have a little bit of bacon, but then you might mix it in with a lot of greens, right? So the part about the vegetables that I did not mention is that I want people to eat vegetables, and twenty five carbs um, can be a challenge for some because it's not a lot, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm encouraging you. Yes, I want you to eat a lot, but really, what I want you to do is eat a variety because I want the micronutrients that come from a variety. So instead of just eating like a cup of broccoli or half a cup of broccoli and let that be part of the meal. Cause that's like, you know, five to seven carbs, right? Just like broccoli. Um, I would prefer that you eat a Floretta two of broccoli, Floretta two of cauliflower, two or three spears of asparagus, some basil to that, a piece of garlic, some leeks, you know, so I'm, what I'm encouraging people is that let's kind of expand what the vegetables so that we can get micronutrients from all the different kinds. Because that's where they we get the micronutrients is from the vegetables. So I want them to expand their horizons of the vegetables. So sometimes when I'm helping people heal their guts, I'm like, you know, the best healing and the way you create diversity in your gut is as is plant protein. So then I would say, go to the store and pick out 10, you know, vegetables. And then we do a little bit, like so many grams of vegetables, and we can make a, some kind of smoothie out of that, right? And, and have that once a day, you know, uh, let that be part of one of your meals, uh, because then you get the plant protein and you'll still remain within the carb limit, but then also will help the gut and the microbiome in the process. So that's that's kind of what I'm asking as far as like the plant piece, but then the fat piece, when I get their nutrition genome, because we look at their genetics. So like for me, for me to have like half saturated fat, half monounsaturated fat, I don't have the genes for that. So when you look at my genetics and I'm looking at my macronutrient genetics and there's certain um, genes that regulate or code for enzymes in my body and those enzymes, when I have certain things, when I'm like, let's say I have more saturated fat, it will turn that gene on and what will be created in my body is more like high triglycerides and high blood sugars, right? So then I actually shoot myself in the foot by eating more saturated fat. Uh, and I've done that before, by the way. <laughs> and I've, I've, I've done it, I've tested, I've looked at it, and I'm like, wow, it really is not lying to me. That's why personalized medicine is just so important. It is. Is That's how we individualize the plants. We look at the genetics, and then I'm like, okay, you are, like I'm what they consider hunter-gatherer, meaning I don't have, a, I haven't quite, my genes haven't quite, adapted to agrarian society so i have to get like i can't get omega-3s from plant sources like flax or um or walnut i have to go directly to the fish and to the fish oil so i have things otherwise my triglycerides will go up you know if i eat a lot of saturated fat or eat just the the meals that my triglycerides will rise i need more of like a, a fatty meat in the form of a fish not necessarily pork for me, but it's fish, right? 
So, um, so it's that. And then I have other genetics that kind of, that just tell me you don't like saturated fat a lot. And I do, I don't, if I pay attention to how I feel, cause I used to do like a 50, 50, I didn't feel great physically, but when I started to lower the saturated fat, you know, to like maybe 20%, meaning out of, let's say out of 10 tablespoons of fat a day, right. Of oil, two of those could come from a saturated source, right? Like either coconut oil or butter, or I might have a little piece of meat and I don't have that often, right? Um, and then I raised the monounsaturates, like the olive oil. And then, man, I felt great. Like I felt good. It's like things flowed a little better. So, you know, our, yeah, so we do, we kind of personalize things in the form of genetics in my practice. And, in, and I've learned that from the metabolic approach to cancer as well that's comes directly from you know dr winters dr anderson you know that's really i started working with genetics with dr anderson great uh, you're surrounded by amazing practitioners sure. yes i've been lucky now just before we get into random round questions i just wanted to ask you your best advice for someone diagnosed with cancer uh, so my best advice to someone diagnosed with cancer is do not get caught up in the hurting or the whirlwind that will come from just the standard way of approaching it, right? Because people oftentimes, they, they might like a, a, a female might be doing a breast exam in the shower and she notices a lump and she goes to the doctor and she says, well, I've noticed this. And then he or she checked, the doctor checks things out. Right. And says, yes, I so let's do a mammogram. So then they go to the mammogram. Then the mammogram shows something suspicious. Then they're like, they're getting the call. They're like, it's called the callback. Right. So you get the call back and they're saying, yeah, you need to come back in. We have to do ultrasound and MRI. And then all of a sudden they're like, I want a biopsy. And the next thing you know, like two days later, they're in for surgery. Or, you know, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, right? But for some, it's like that. Like I'm helping a friend right now. Her sister has colon cancer. And, you know, literally she, I, and I knew for some time that this lady had something off. I, cause I was looking at her labs before she, she, she didn't even have a primary. She just didn't feel good. And she sent me labs and I'm like, wow, there's something really wrong. We need this, this, and this. So eventually she did all the things I asked and yes, they found, they found colon cancer. So then she went, you know, they, they wanted biopsy and then literally they had her the next day in the surgeon's office, you know? So I, when she talked to me, I said, can we just pump the brakes a little bit? You know, can we just slow this process down and just collect more data? So that's what I would tell people is just don't get caught up with that because what happens is people get caught up with things and, you know, they get scared and, you know, it is a scary process. So they're told, you know, from the get-go, all the possibilities that can happen to them, um, you know, but my advice is, you know, sometimes you have to not listen to those possibilities because it will lump you into the statistics and you will become another statistic. And part of what I get to see, so I get to see people that, you know, one, they survive or they're, they, they have great quality of life or they live beyond their expiration day. You know, like when I work with people with glioblastomas, uh, you know, their expiration date is usually a year or less. And I've seen them go two plus years, you know. So I don't get to see sometimes what oncologists see because oncologists see the really, um, you know, they see the, 
just everybody dies for them, right? And every once in a while, they'll get this great patient that survives. Um, but I get to see more of the survival and the extension of life from my part. Mm-hmm. And, and it's those patients that choose to do that. They choose to be a little different. So that's what I just tell. Don't get caught in the whirlwind. Take your time. Make the right decisions and the right choice for you. You know, that's really what I think. I think people, they let their power be taken by the doctor or the lawyer or whoever. And then part of the healing process, you know, you've got to take your power back. I don't want your power and you shouldn't be giving it to this other doctor. It needs to reside with you so that you can heal. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And that's exactly what I say in in the podcast. And the reason for the podcast is to take your power back when it comes to your health. So that's just such a perfect way to go into random round. Okay. So are you ready? I'm ready. (laughs) Fill in the blank. Freedom to you is. Oh, wow. Um, You know, freedom to me is, there's so many freedoms to me, but you have to have freedom of health, right? You have to be able to be healthy to enjoy all these other freedoms. I could say financial freedom, but financial freedom wouldn't mean squat if I wasn't healthy because then I wouldn't be able to enjoy. Exactly. You know, so to me, freedom is about being healthy. And so it is about having a certain amount of health and wellness and well-being. The last show you binged and loved. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, well, let me see. What did I? I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan, Game of Thrones. Love Game of Thrones. Literally, just a few years, Game of Thrones. So I'm, I'm Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Game of Thrones. I love all those types of shows, but I really, literally, I binged game of thrones like i just i couldn't get enough of it. i was literally sitting in the hyperbaric chamber watching it on my phone back i think it was like 2018 when i was kind of starting to come on to that but i have to kind of it's kind of like eating you know like a piece of pie or having fruit i i find that i i will get sucked into it so easily because on tv is not a big thing right i mean i'm i do a little bit of show watching in the evening sometimes but I know myself, well, I could just really, oh, let's do the next one. Let's do the next one. Let's do the next one. <laughs> it's addicting. It is. It is. So. When you're feeling afraid, what do you do? Uh, when I'm feeling afraid, I like to go in inward. I mean, that is kind of what I, I need to get quiet so that I can hear the voice, you know, my true voice, right? Because I feel like the fear and anxiety they all have voices but in that voice in all those voices i have to be able to hear my voice and so i i have to get quiet i have to do things that nurture me and that kind of quieten me down and connect me with my own intuition Mm -hmm. so that's that's how i have to do that perfect what is your favorite go-to snack Wow. So I'm a crunchy, I have a crunchy fetish, I call it. I like thing, I like crunchy things. So sometimes I will like, uh, I love these. They are from, what's the name of them? They're an almond cracker. You know, I want to simply, simple meals, maybe I think. Oh, simple meals. Yes, they have one. So I like, you know, I do like sardine or salmon salads. 
But I like with those types of things, I like a crunch. So I'll take like maybe two, three of the crackers. I'll nibble on the cracker, right? Just to kind of have the crunch part of it instead of just eating the whole bag of crackers. Because yes, I mean, if I wanted, if I wasn't paying attention, then I would eat the whole, I could literally sit down and eat the whole box. But I like a crunch. So anything with that's crunchy for me, is really kind of like a snack, like a go-to. Sometimes I'll do the little cracker with some cheese on it uh, before a meal. Perfect. What is one simple thing that brings you joy? Being in cold water. <laughs> really? Believe it or not, really. I love, one of the things I've been doing with my a friend of mine is we have been taking these dips in Lake Washington right now. And whenever we had the solstice back in, you know, in December last month, we had this really cold time, you know, where uh, it was literally like it, it was like at five o'clock, it was like 24 degrees here, you know, at five in the afternoon. So what we did was they still had snow on the ground because it had snowed a few days before and it was really cold, like 18 degrees. We went and we jumped in the lake. And we tried to stay at least 30 seconds to a minute. The joy comes with the accomplishment. Like, wow, I did that, you know, or my friend sent me a picture of her and I in the water. And she says, we make 37 degrees look really fun and effortless. (laughs) That's awesome. And there's so many health benefits, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There is a lot of health benefits. Yeah. And last, I just want to ask you, how can people find you? and and learn more great um so i have a i have a website uh it, my practice name is called clear mind integrative health and so if people just do clearmindintegrativehealth.com they will kind of approach my site they would get to my site from my site they can yes i have someone that we have new submissions that come through all the time you know but that is the best way in my i have a clinic phone uh, although the i think the website is typically the best way but the phone is 206-219-0211 but like i said i think clearmindintegrativehealth.com is probably the best way perfect to, to get me and then to see more about me really yeah well thank you so much this was such a great conversation and sure. I know it's going to help a lot of people so thank you thank you Haley. thank you thanks for having me it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, the sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health.